All right, guys, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. The Gospel of John chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 562, okay? So if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, that's page 562. Now, we're up to the fifth chapter, and I kind of remind you what we're doing here. We're going through the Gospel of John and as we're going through the Gospel of John, we want to get to know Jesus. Because here's the reality. The reality is, is that if you've been a believer for a long time, if you've gone to church a long time in your life, and you've heard message after message, it's real easy to develop thinking in your mind about who Jesus is and how he acts. And a lot of times, it's... Well, they're wrong. They're wrong images. You know, if, if you get the newsletter I wrote this week about distorted images, I was, uh, I was reminded of a song from, from years ago by a, a, an artist called Wayne Watson. And in, in the song, the premise of the song is, would I know you now if you walked into the room? And, and one of the lines in the song, and I put it in the newsletter, was what I wrote in the newsletter was, have the images I've created so distorted who you are. And so the reality is, is that we sometimes create in our mind how Jesus acts, how he responds, what he does, but it's not who he is. And it distorts the reality of who he is. And, and I'll be honest, that happens over time. It's not intentional. It just happens over time. If you've been around Christian circles, it just happens. Maybe it's something your grandma told you, or maybe it's something some other writer told you, or some other preacher told you. It's something that maybe you developed in your own thinking because maybe God didn't answer that, so you tried to figure out why he didn't answer that, so you came to some, come, some kind of conclusion about who Jesus is and how he acts, and in this situation, this is how he responds. And what we do is we create in our mind these pictures of Jesus, and it distorts our entire thinking about who he is. Now, how do we correct that? Get back to the Gospels and meet the Jesus who's in the Gospels. And that's what we're going to do today. Today we're going to go to the fifth chapter and it's going to start off with another miracle. Now, here's the problem though. When you read it, we like to focus on the miracle. He's going to heal a man who's been paralyzed for over 30 years. And so we think, okay, that's what the point of the passage is. Actually, no, it's conveying another truth. John, the gospel writer, wants us to understand his purpose in writing this letter. And what's his purpose? He wants to show us who God is, what Jesus is really focused on, and how he was rejected and why he was rejected. And so the purpose of today's story in verses 1 to 15 of chapter 5 is to talk to you about, he's kind of setting the stage for why Jesus would be rejected by his own. And there's actually some things we can learn from that. So let's, let's look at this together. We're going to read verses 1 to 15. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles or if you're not using a pew Bible. But let's look at this together. Read along with me and notice what John writes 
about this incident. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time in the pool, stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had infirm an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already had been in this condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they said to them, said to him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn the multitude in that place. A multitude in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed from there and told the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. Now here's what we're going to do, folks. We're going to take this portion of Scripture and we're going to divide it into three sections. We're going to see, first of all, we're going to talk about the miracle. And what you're going to see is Jesus' initiative. It's going to be actually quite amazing if you think about Jesus' initiative with this instance. I'm going to point out some things to you that are very different with what's happening here compared to some other times, okay? Then we're going to see what the bigger issue is. Why is John bringing up this story? Because there's a bigger issue going on here. So we're going to look at what the bigger issue is, and then we're going to conclude with the issue of a choice. Jesus shows back up in this guy's life, tells him what he needs to do, and a guy makes a choice. And that's where all of us are at. Okay, so let's talk about this together. So first of all, Jesus' initiative. What is amazing about this story is this. Okay, here's the setting. First of all, remember, the last time we were in the gospel, we were in chapter 4, Jesus was in Cana of Galilee. So he was in northern Israel, in Cana. When we come to chapter 5, sometime later, it doesn't tell you specifically when, it doesn't even tell you the feast, it just tells you that there was a feast in Jerusalem, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now, just so you understand, the law stated there were three main feasts in Jerusalem a year. And of those three feasts, every Jewish male had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be there for that feast. 
Three feasts. Now, John's not really worried about which feast it is. It's just that Jesus is there for a feast. Now, as Jesus is there, he goes to a pool by the sheep gate. So one of the gates of the city, there was a pool there. And the interesting thing about this pool is, verse 4, there's some question about whether verse 4 is originally in the gospel or not. Most manuscripts will denote that, but it's basically a thought that what was happening there is that people believed that there was a healing power to this water. And the healing power came from that they said an angel would appear and go into the water and stir up the water. Okay, so that was the local superstition. All right. So what happened is, is around this pool was a multitude of people who were sick. The paralyzed, the disabled, and they're all waiting for the water to move. And then there would be a mad rush to be the first one to get in the water. That's pretty, pretty terrible, isn't it? So Jesus shows up there. Now, this is the amazing thing to me. Here is the creator showing up in a multitude of people who are in despair. And he reaches out to one guy. Now, the amazing thing when you read the text is the one guy wasn't really wanting anything from Jesus. But Jesus reached out to him. That's the initiative of God, isn't it? He wasn't even looking. He was just looking for somebody. He didn't even, wasn't expecting. Well, let me go through the points and we'll see what's going on here. So here's the first thing. Look with me at verse 6. Jesus singles out a man in a setting of despair. Jesus singles out a man in a setting of despair. We see that in verse 6. He looks down at this guy. He knows what's going on with this guy. Jesus knew this guy's been paralyzed. Listen to this. Paralyzed for 30-some years. Jesus knows this guy's been paralyzed for 30-some years. He's there in a multitude of a whole bunch of other people who are sick and lame and paralyzed. And Jesus looks at this guy and says, hey, do you want to be made well? Jesus takes the initiative. And sometimes that initiative is kind of wild to us, isn't it? It's wild to me that he would pick this guy. And you're actually going to see this guy doesn't believe. He doesn't believe necessarily. How do we know that? We'll see that at the end. Okay, so the first thing, Jesus singles out a man who's in the setting of despair. Here's the second thing. Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? He just doesn't go up to the guy and say, get up and walk. He says, do you want to be healed? Here's the thing. God doesn't force himself on you. You have to be the one to, to ask him. You have to be the one to respond to him. You have to be the one who invites him to come into your life. Do you understand? That's what's happening here. He's saying to this guy, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? That's the reality of Jesus here. 
Do you want to be made whole? And of course, look, the guy has no clue. Listen, if you look at it, look with me at verse 7. The guy only sees healing through his superstition that he's bought. Look at what verse 7 says. He says, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. But while I'm coming, another one steps down before me. This guy, first of all, he doesn't know who Jesus is. He can't comprehend a healing beyond what he's thinking. And he's saying to him, yeah, I want to be healed, but I don't have anybody to put me in the water. Do you see the irony here? He's with the guy who created humanity. The scripture tells us that Jesus was at creation. And he's saying he can't comprehend beyond his little world that healing might come from somewhere else. Isn't that how we operate? You know, so I was talking with somebody here in the last week, and they were facing a crisis. I don't want to get into the details of it. I'll just give you the generic facts because it illustrates my point here. Here it is. So they were facing a crisis. All of a sudden, something unexpected happened. It was going to be a financial crisis for them. And they were like, how am I going to do this? So in their mind, all they could see is what they know. All they could see is, is what they can expect based upon their experiences in life. So I said to this person, God knows your desires, he knows your dreams, he knows what you want to do. Go to him and say to him, God, I need you to work this out. So guess what? They did pray. And just a short time later, God opened up an answer beyond anything that they could imagine. And with that answer, they're going to be in a whole lot better financial position than they were before. To be able to what? Accomplish their dream. See, we can only see things through what we know. And that's what this guy's at. This guy's at. So here's the point. The man could only see healing through what he knew, what he knows. The man could only see the healing through what he knows. Aren't you like that when we go to prayer? Don't we do that? I know I'm like that. God, I need you to answer this prayer. And we tell him how to do it. Isn't that what you... I do it. I give God five steps. Lord, take care of this, and then there's the what is. Now, if this happens, do it this way. Okay? And, and the reality is, listen to me, the reality is... Think about what I'm doing. I'm telling the creator of the universe who spoke everything into existence, whose foolishness is more wiser than all the wisdom I might have, how to do things. Why? Because I can only see things through my what? Little world. And that's where this guy's at. But aren't you glad for the blessing of God? Because here's what Jesus does. Look with me, verse 8 and 9. Jesus says this. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. 
And that day was the Sabbath. Here's what I'm gonna, I want you to see is, is that Jesus called him to act and he was healed. Jesus called him to act. Jesus is reaching out and touching him in a way that was beyond anything he can comprehend. He thought that healing had to become through him, somebody dragging him into the water at the right moment. But Jesus just speaks the word. Get up, roll up your bed, and walk. And you know what's wonderful? He did it. He had at least enough understanding to do it. And he was healed. Now that's the initiative of God. You say, man, that's a wonderful story, George. What do you mean that's not the point of this passage? Well, that story is setting the stage. That story is actually setting a stage to a bigger issue. And the bigger issue, can I tell you, is something that you and I struggle with as well. And especially if you've come to church for a long time. The bigger issue is how we see the way God acts and what we think is more important. And it's going to be revealed through the Jewish leaders. I want you to look with me at verses 10 through 13. We're going to see what the bigger issue is here. All right, look with me at verses 10 through 13. So remember, the last part of verse 9 says, it is the Sabbath. Now, let me just kind of remind you, some of you maybe have been raised, when I was a boy, I would hear that you've got to keep the Sabbath holy, but they talked about the Sabbath being the Sunday. No, no. The Sabbath is Saturday. From Friday evening until Saturday evening, that is the Sabbath. And for the Jew, that is a holy time. It is the day of rest, and you can't do any work on that day. It's not the Sunday. That's the Lord's day, okay? Well, anyhow, so he makes the point that it's the Sabbath. So when you get to verse 10, look with me at verse 10. Look at what he says. And the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. All right, now here's what we're going to see, the big issue, okay? First of all, so did you understand what's happening here? They had a law, a rule in that time, that you couldn't do work. So the law said, the law of the scripture said, Keep the Sabbath holy. It is a day of rest. Now, here's what they did. The Jews are ingenious. So they figured out how to keep the Sabbath holy. And what they did was, is they codified a set of rules of how you were to keep the Sabbath holy. Now, they must have had brainstorming sessions or something where they, they turned around and, and had this thing about how to make sure you weren't working on the Sabbath. And so one of the rules that they came up with, it was the, from the tradition of the elders. So this is from the tradition of the elders. You couldn't carry your bed on the Sabbath. Now, I'm not talking about you couldn't lug your mattress. 
They didn't have mattresses like we do. They, what they had was blankets or whatever, and they rolled them up, and you couldn't do that. To, to go from one place to another with your bed with you was considered work. And so they imposed these traditions upon all the people, and when you did one of these traditions, broke one of these traditions of carrying your bed on the Sabbath, you broke the Sabbath. It's still happening today. So, for instance, if you and I were to all get in a plane... Head over to Israel right now. Check into a hotel. It's Friday evening until Saturday. Let's say you're on the 10th floor of the hotel. You've had your meal. You go to the elevator. It opens up for you. You get in and you're pressing number 10. Number 10, number 10, number 10. It's not responding to you pressing the number 10 because it goes to floor 5. And you're like, no, I'm on floor 10. It goes down to floor two. Up to 13. Well, there's no 13 in a hotel, right? Up to 14. And so it's intermittently, the, the, they, they call them Shabbat elevators. They go to random places. The elevator will go to random places, and then when it ends up at your floor, you get off. Why? Because to press the button to go to your floor is work. And you would violate the Sabbath. You say, are you crazy? No, that's what they do over there. What is that? Religious rules. And that's what's going on in Jesus' time. And that's the bigger issue of what he's wanting to get at here. So let me make a couple of points here of what the bigger issue is, okay? Here's the first one. The first one is, is they view the world through one's compliance to religious rules. They, the, the people in this time who were in Judea and Galilee, who were followers of Yahweh, they had so lost the perspective of the worship of God that they had reduced down living for God to simply keeping a set of rules. And so what they did was is they basically saw life through whether or not you were keeping the rules. Have you thought it was interesting when you read through the Gospels, it'll say that Jesus hung out with the sinners and the tax collectors? You ever seen that phrase? Sinners and the tax collectors? So, okay, what does that mean, sinners? Now, we understand tax collectors, right? Even to this day, we don't like them. I mean, they're nice people. We don't like a tax collector because it's collecting money from the government for the government, right? We don't want to pay our taxes. But what's this thing about sinners? Well, sinners were people who were not what? Keeping the rules. And so they saw life completely through the whole issue. The whole thing of spirituality was sawn as to whether or not you were keeping the rules. Have you been in a church like that? I have. It's bondage. And here's the scary thing. The rules change with each church you go to, don't they? You know what I'm saying? The rules change. So, for instance, you know, like one of the things I remember as a young man being in this church in West Columbia, South Carolina, this independent Baptist church, one thing we, we did not do 
is have a swim party. Because mixed bathing is wrong. What mixed bathing? What, what? That's what they refer to it as. Guys and gals swimming in the same pool, that's mixed bathing. That's wrong. But if you go over to North Carolina where my dad's from, it's okay to smoke cigarettes there. Come up to the north, let's have a pool party with the youth group. But oh my goodness, don't you dare smoke. What's going on? Rules. And for somebody who breaks the rules, we look at them as what? We question, oh, they're backslid. Ever heard that one? They're backslidden. Why? Well, I saw them over on that part of town, going into that restaurant, going here, going there. Do you know what I'm saying? They were at the movie house. The movie house, theater, for those of you who don't know what that is, okay, theater. And rules. And so we judge spirituality based upon rules. How did you dress coming to church? What kind of Bible did you have? Did you come to church every time the door was open? It's easy to fall into that trap. We fall into that trap. You say, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. Are you sure you're not like that? Because it's easy to get there. Well, I don't have those kind of attitudes, George. Yeah, but maybe you have an attitude of whether or not somebody volunteers enough. Somebody gives enough. Whether somebody's reading their Bible or can answer the questions or whether or not somebody is visibly struggling with their addiction issue versus another issue. Did you understand what I'm saying? We can all fall into this trap. It's called, are you ready for it, religion. So they view the world through one's compliance to religious rules. And here's the second thing I want you to see. Here's, here's actually the devastating thing. The violation of the rules become more important than the act of God. Do you see what's going on here? Here's a guy who's been laying by this pool forever. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. It's, it, I mean, yeah, it's a big city, but people would know who this guy is. And when the guy says, well, I've been laying by the pool and some guy came, came and told me to get up and walk, you, rather than saying, wow, praise God, isn't that awesome that God did that for you? They're like, who did that? Who told you to do that on the Sabbath? The violation of the rules become more important than God. Now do we wonder why people leave the church? I'm, I'm always amazed when somebody will say, oh, you're a pastor. Where are you a pastor? Oh, I'm a pastor there. Oh, yeah, I used to go there. And then they tell you their horror story. And I'll never go there again. Why? Because rules became more important than God for others. And that turned off those other people. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? Look, I think we understand that. 
Did Jesus die for you to keep rules? It's pretty blatant, right? Think about it. It's that simplistic. Did Jesus die for you to keep rules? No, he died to free you from the bondage of keeping rules. Not that you would go and do whatever you want to do, but that you would live the life that he wants you to live for him. Did you understand what I'm saying? That he wants you to live for him because you're in, you want to do what's right for him. Do you understand? This is the bigger issue. And we're going to see that this is the main reason they attacked Jesus from here on out. Do you want to know why they wanted Jesus dead? He was upsetting the system. And only God can upset the system, right? So that's what we see here is the bigger issue. But then we're going to notice that Jesus isn't done with this guy. He took the initiative. He went to a guy who wasn't even looking for healing. He thought that if I could just get in the water and be made healed, hold on, you know, if I can get in there, he's thinking the water is going to heal him. God shows up, says, hey, do you want to be healed? The guy's still thinking, well, I have nobody to put me in the water. Jesus says, get up and walk, take up your bed. Guy's healed. The guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. But again, look at the initiative of God, okay? Look with me, verse 14. This is what is so amazing. God does not give up on people. If some of you need to write that down. God does not give up on people. Look at verse 14. Look at what he says. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. Jesus found him. In the temple. What would he be doing in the temple? Well, what do you do in a temple if you're a Jew? You're there for worship. So the guy goes to the temple. Maybe he's making sacrifices because he has healing, has been healed now, that would be called for. Maybe he's there for whatever reason. But Jesus finds him in the temple. Now look at what it says here. Jesus found him in a temple and said to him, look at what Jesus says, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Here's what's going on. Here's the second. Jesus calls the man to turn, from his, turn from, his, from his own life, from his old life. Jesus calls this man to turn from his life. Listen, that's what happened when, when he saves you. Can I be honest with you? When he reaches down, because, I mean, let's be honest, we're real appreciative that we've been forgiven, right? I, hopefully you are. We're, we're real appreciative that the things that we regret in life the most that he wipes those clean, that the shame that, that we carry, that he wipes that away, that he doesn't hold that against us. Isn't it awesome to think that the stuff that we've done, that we regret in life, the sins that we've committed, God does not hold that against us anymore. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, but here's what he says. So do something now about it. Not for it, but because of it. And the point is, turn from your old way. Turn from your old way. 
And you say, well, he's warning the guy here. If he doesn't, it's going to be worse. Yeah, you could take that anyway. You could say you could end up in a worse situation than being paralyzed for 30-some years. We've seen that in our lives. If you know people that are struggling with things and, and they, they get to the place where it's like, I've overcome this, and you're like, yes, change your friends. Do something different. Make a change. And they don't. Guess what? They find themselves right back where they were, only this time it's a whole lot worse off. A whole lot worse off. Jesus calls the man to turn from his old life, his own life, his old life. Here's the thing, though, but this is, this is where we're at. People are, have to make a choice. See, Jesus offers us a lot, okay? But the choice is always yours, right? Look at how this guy responds. So Jesus is there, says, hey, turn from your sin, or something worse is going to happen to you. What does the guy do? What does the guy do? Well, we know what others do. You think about the guy who was possessed by legion. I'll go with you. Let me go with you. I'll follow you wherever. That guy's like, I'll be with you. You healed me. I'm, I'm. This guy, look at what he does. Look at verse 15. It's pretty telling. What does he do? Verse 15. The man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus who had made him well. That's a choice, isn't it? God is offering this guy life. I healed you. Now you change your life. Guess what he does? Goes right back into the bondage. Goes right back into the religious bondage. Can I be honest with you? I have a feeling that some of you have made that kind of choice in your life. Jesus frees you through salvation from a system of do's and don'ts and makes you new and gives you a new life to live in him. But sometimes it's easier just to go along with the flow of religion. And to live in that bondage. And to be honest with you, you're actually in a worse state than before. Because before you didn't know any better. But now you do know better because you've been set free from Jesus. But for some reason, you've ruled your life now by this concept that I've got to do things to continue to get the love from Jesus. Listen, folks. You can't do any more for the love for Jesus. He's already done it all for you, hasn't he? In fact, right now, he's interceding for you because he knows you're going to mess up. He knows you're going to sin. So he's interceding at the right hand of the Father. What is he telling the Father? I took care of that. They're forgiven. But we go right back for some reason, back into the bondage. Do you see the bigger issue here is? 
Jesus wants us to have a life in him. But the choice is ours, right? Let's make a good choice. Let me pray for you.